welcome to Learn It From a Layman. I'm Carl Christensen, back again. Uh, now I'm joined again by uh, Cameron Christensen, generally a reliable member of our podcasting crew. Had to miss the last couple, but he's back. Uh, Matt Christensen and Tim, I do flapper dances, Cox is with us again. Hey, they're very historically accurate. That's correct. A uh, very, uh, uh, yeah, important um, fact and information that's going to be relevant to today's podcast. Uh, we're doing the 1920s today. But before we get into the 1920s, I've got a new uh, podcast member, a new uh, friend of mine that's joining the podcast for the first time, uh, Gary Newvine. Hi, Gary. Hello. Nice to meet you. Uh, nice, <laughs> yeah, n- nice to have you on the podcast. Um, Gary here has uh, actually come up indirectly on the podcast before, at least uh uh, so we've got Gary. Uh, we've got uh, some listeners from in Australia, and I have mentioned before that we have our fr- uh, friends that uh, that live in Aust- or lived in Australia. So you, your wife, uh, have have come up before on the podcast. So you're uh, kind of familiar to our listeners uh, very tangentially. So you can say hi to our our Australian listeners. Hello, Australia. I I always uh, you know jokingly tell people I went to Australia for three months. And I came home eight years later with a wife, a dog, and two children. And it's funny because everybody in my house, except for me, was born in Australia. Nice. Yes. Wow. So it's a very successful trip to Australia for Gary. So uh, <laughs> um, Gary here is going to be doing a longer uh, a podcast with me uh, here next episode next week or next week or two. Uh, but I've invited Gary on here. We're going to talk very briefly here. Uh, Gary does a solar company here in Southern California. He's going to tell us a little bit about his company and solar panels. So I'll let Gary take it away here. Okay, fantastic. Um, I've been working in the solar industry for uh, going on eight years now. And in that time, I've worked for some large companies. I've also worked for some small companies. And I've recently branded my own company working throughout Southern California. Uh, The name of the company is Southern Cal Solar. I have a website for anybody interested, uh, www.southerncalsolar.com. Um, the big issue is a lot of people in Southern California see that we have a massive problem, but they see it in the form of rolling blackouts and rising electricity costs. The problem that we have is that we don't make enough of our own electricity in Southern California, and that means we have to import it from neighboring states, and that dries up the prices, and now we're among the most expensive utilities in the country. So more than half of a typical Southern California electric bill is transmission delivery charges. Now, in 2018, the governor of California signed into law that by 2026, half the power sold in California has to be green renewable power. By 2030, 60%. By 2045, 100% of the power sold in California must be from a green renewable source. Um, with PV solar, you can lock in your, your price for your electricity. There's a ton of information out there about solar. And there are different programs available, and I've sold, and I've offered all those different programs that are available. Where my company is a bit different is that we have different installers competing to get you the best prices. And we've vetted those companies to find the best installers. From regional installers to national companies, we get the best installers and, of course, the best prices and the best program for your personal home. So that's my my, minute and a half uh, spiel about solar. And as I said, the the biggest thing that we do is we actually do custom um, designs for the home, show people where their panels are going to be. 
We're going to show them what it, how it's going to affect them, their their bills financially, of course, and um, you know what the long term savings are going to be. That's great. Yeah, really quick, uh, Gary. So I, obviously your company SoCal Solar, you do most for your work in uh, California. Our biggest listener base, though I rarely mention it on the podcast, is in California. Uh, but we do have listeners in Arizona, Nevada. Do you do any business in those states as well, or are you just uh, California-based? Um, I can do work throughout the country. I've done work. I've, I've been in Rhode Island. I've been in Colorado. I've been in Nevada. I've been in um, Arizona. So, yes, we have you know, national installers that can work throughout the country. And then of course we have regional or Southern California. We've got regional installers as well. That's great. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think it's important to understand what the options are. Uh, we've talked, uh, we've talked a little bit about energy in this podcast in the past quite a bit. Um, so I think it's going to be an interesting podcast next time when we talk about solar panels, but, uh, the, where the rubber meets the road is where Gary works, where you actually want to get some solar panels, get a, get them installed. So we'll talk a little bit more about that next time. But uh, Tim or Cameron or Matt, if you have any questions for Gary really quick. Tim? So Gary's um, our sponsor this, this <laughs> year. That, that's right. No, Gary, I, I have just a, a random question. I know that um, there's been progress in solar technology and so forth. Um, has the cost of like, uh, manufacturing a solar panel, you know, gone down? If so, how much, you know, in, in recent years? Or I don't know if that's part of your segment of the, of, um, you know, working in solar, but do you know anything about that? Yeah, I've actually been to a facility in Oregon where they actually do make solar panels. And one of the interesting questions I asked, there was a, a gentleman who's from Germany who, uh, you know, worked in the solar industry for 30 plus years. And I asked him, I said, well, what's next and what's down the road? And he said, there's nothing other than, uh, than crystalline cells making electricity on the immediate horizon. So, you know, the cost of manufacturing has certainly come down. Um, and, but that's not the only cost, of course, in a solar. You've got permitting, you've got install, installing, you've got warranty, you've got you know, a number of different factors involved. So the costs are certainly coming down a little bit. Um, and on top of that, there's a federal tax credit, which reduced from last year to this year. It's going to reduce again next year. And unless it unless anything changes, then it's scheduled to go away after uh, 2021 totally. So mm-hmm. it'll probably be renewed, but I can't. My crystal ball broke a long time ago, and I don't know if that will uh-huh. be renewed. Well, I'm, okay. I'm, I, I know where to get some crystal balls. They're very reliable. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, we could talk about that because mine broke a long time ago and I stopped uh, telling the future. <laughs> right, right. Well, that, it's certainly a good motivation uh, unless someone else owns a crystal ball and knows the future to get a solar panel sooner than later, um, to get that tax credit um, available to them while they know they have it. So, um yeah, thanks, Gary. I uh, anyone that's looking once again, uh, SoCalSolar.com, right, Gary? Southern Cal Solar. Southern Cal, Southern Cal, Cal Solar. There we go. Dot com. All right, okay. fantastic. Uh, you guys have a great podcast, and I'll talk to you again. All right, thank you, Gary. Thanks See you, much. Gary. Right. Thanks, have, have a great day. Bye. Bye. So, uh, Gary's uh, been, like I said, a friend of uh, mine for quite a while. Um, and uh, like I said, has come up in the podcast. So this is a good opportunity to once again say thank you to our listeners uh, in Australia. They've been surpassed recently by our Canadian listeners, though. So 
Um, I don't do a Canadian accent, but uh, for those that are listening in Canada, thank you. I, I uh, would be remiss if I didn't notice our Irish listener base has also gone up. And I've heard that Tim is, does a very good Irish accent. Uh, learned entirely from watching Lucky Charms commercials. <laughs> Which I've heard is a very realistic. That's how they live in Ireland. That's right. I'm sure that in Ireland they, they love that depiction of the <laughs> Irish accent. <laughs> right. I believe we all have some Irish heritage in this. So uh, uh, anyway. But, That's right. Um, anyway, uh, I'm all English. <laughs> <laughs> hey, spoilers. Ireland will make an appearance in today's podcast. Ooh. Nice oh. All right. You're not talking about a potato famine, are you? No. Um, though, yeah, after this, we should, like, work backwards in time into the 1800s. <laughs> we've already yeah, we've talked about that doing earlier podcasts. We, we, this is already a 12-part miniseries uh, here, so I think uh, people can't really handle any more than 12 parts of us. So, um, <laughs> I think most struggle people struggle with can. one or two parts. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Although I know a number of people who would prefer that I be divided into 12 parts. <laughs> your students your don't children? count as people, Tim. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, we're going to start with our, our history podcast. So we're going to jump in here. If you haven't listened to our 1900s and 1910s podcast, I recommend that you go back and listen. We've got some good facts there. But if you just came for the Roaring Twenties, that's what we've got for you today. So I'm going to start uh, kick us off here. I'm going to talk a little bit about science technology, and then I'll, uh, I'll pass it off. Um, but I'm going to start with uh, some science and technology in the 1920s. And there were some very important things that happened in the 1920s uh, with relation to uh, relation. Uh, to science and technology. The one, uh, 1921, uh, was when uh, insulin was uh, first uh, discovered, manufactured, uh, invented, uh, some combination of those words. So a uh, very obviously important uh, discovery, something that uh, made life possible, really, for those type 1 diabetics. Um, and uh, it was... While it was discovered in 1921, the turnaround to having it commercially available was really short. My understanding is that it was about 1923 where it started being uh, uh, manufactured on uh, mass and was available to the uh, to the population, at least in the United States. I don't know how fast it went uh, worldwide, but um, that was a big, obviously a huge um, step forward in, in medical uh, treatment for diabetics. And that's very important, I think, for a lot of people these days. You, I think anyone, I know everyone in this podcast, and I know, uh, I'd imagine even all our listeners know a type 1 diabetic. And so uh, 1921 was a very important year for them, uh, for, for everyone. Uh, so uh, 1923, uh, development uh, of a hearing aid was, uh, so was first, Invented so the hearing hearing aids first invented in 1923, um, 1925 we've got the Geiger counter that was invented and the television. So the television I'm going to spend just a minute on here. So the television we've discussed it was brought up I believe in uh, two podcasts ago when we talked about the 1900s maybe in the 1910s we talked about um, Philo T. Farnsworth. Um, and he, before I talk, touch on Farnsworth, I'm going to talk about John Baird, John Logie Baird. John Logie Baird was, uh, I believe, Irish. So, um, once again. That, that's our first Irish reference. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I literally might take that. <laughs> he was Scottish, not Irish. So, oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh, boy. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, <laughs> I'm really sorry. Um, 
I mean, that, that's not a forgivable error. That's right. <laughs> lost a, <laughs> lost uh, well, I'm very American base. these days. It's uh, I know they're back uh, there in that area. So um, <laughs> anyway. Um, wow. John, hey, John. To, all, to all our Scottish listeners and Irish as well, because they're probably upset too, we will find a way for Carl to do penance in our next podcast. Yes, so. exactly. Uh, it'll be a, a virtual flogging, I believe. There um, will be blood. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so John Logie Baird uh, was the inventor of the mechanical television. And so 1925 uh, was when he first, uh, I believe, uh, demonstrated his mechanical television. Um in 1928, um, he demonstrated, uh, he, he invented had, had, and demonstrated for the public a color mechanic, uh, mechanical television. Um, however, mechanical televisions were not as um, realistic to have uh, mass produced and available to the public, I believe, uh, for size reasons, among potentially other uh, manufacturing concerns. But... Um, so that's where uh, Philo T. Farnsworth comes in, because uh, uh, Philo T. Farnsworth recognized that uh, electronics was really the way to go in order to solve this issue of being able to do, uh, use the, um, that technology and make it mass uh, available to the masses. Uh, so in 1927, Philo T. Farnsworth uh, demonstrated an electronic television, fully electronic television. And that was a big step um, in the... Uh, mass production and uh, mass availability of televisions was making it electronic. So um, there was uh, some issues around. So Philo T. Farnsworth in 1927 had that uh, demo. Um, There was a big uh, lawsuit that developed a few years later with RCA, which which is short. RCA is short for Radio Corporation of America, which is where it started. Obviously, then was moving over into uh, television there in the 1920s, beginning of the 1930s. So uh, the, they started using some of his technology, tried to get a patent that Violet uh, Farnsworth had actually already obtained uh, by claiming that he had not obtained part of a patent for storage of uh, some of the technology electronics that were necessary for the television to run. Uh, turns out they, they were wrong. Violet Farnsworth was correct. He had obtained the correct patent. And so he won that, uh, but he, as subsequent to all of the legal um, cor- uh, lawsuits <clears throat> and the court uh, time he had to spend, essentially he kind of faded back into the background as far as development of television was concerned, um, and didn't. Uh, he won some of the some payment from RCA, but um, anyway, he he was not as influential uh, after the 1920s in, in in pushing the television development forward. But um, he was listed by the time uh, by the time magazine at the end of the 20th century as one of the most important people of the 20th century. So um, obviously, the television had huge impact, and he was first one to make it electronic. Um, so that's a Can little I bit about a the- fun fact about RCA for you. All right, so there's two dogs. If you remember the logo, do you know the names of those dogs? <laughs> uh, no. Nipper and Chipper. Nipper is the older one. Chipper is the puppy. Nice. All there right. So, well, that'll be on the learn it from a layman test um, here that we're going to administer. So you better write that down. Um, okay, thanks, Cameron. Um, 
1926, we had the in invention and the use, first use, I guess, of liquid fuel uh, rocket. Um, so a rocket was launched in 1926 that used liquid uh, rocket fuel, and that was obviously very important in the development of later, larger technologies that used liquid rocket fuel. Uh, 1927, this is going to start stepping on Cameron's toes. So I won't talk this, about this too much, but technology-wise, the uh, movies started changing. Um, we went from having silent movies to having talkies, where essentially people, the actors actually spoke, and uh, you could hear sound. So um, <coughs> instead of having silent film with mu music tracks or whatever, this is actually what a mo movie technology has changed such that they could actually... Uh, sync up audio with the uh, with the visual aspect. Um, 1927. Also, we've got a very uh, memorable flight. And while this uh, didn't change technology uh, significantly, it was a, a very cutting edge use of technology. And that's uh, Charles Lindbergh's flight across the Atlantic. Um, and uh, he. Uh, was it was not the first to do actually a transatlantic flight, uh, but he was the largest transatlantic, uh, uh, the farthest tra transatlantic flight. He flew over 5,000 miles uh, from New York to Paris and um, uh, the, with just a plane. And um, a lot of uh, movies have been made about that. This, he flew in the uh, airplane called the Spirit of St. Uh, Spirit of St. Louis and uh, very difficult journey uh, it took him over 24 hours uh, i know some of the air speeds he was hitting were a whopping uh, 100 miles an hour <laughs> uh, so we're talking a very long trip across the atlantic there um he de dealt with fog he dealt with um uh, exhaustion um being in a single uh, f uh pilot airplane um he, he i believe he dozed off at, at times um, which is obviously incredibly dangerous. Um, not a lot of autopilot in those airplanes back then. But uh, he did successfully complete the flight, uh, landed in Paris uh, to a large crowd that was wait awaiting him there. Um, and uh, so that was a big uh, step in, in using technology, though not uh, obviously not a huge uh, step forward in, in actual technological ability to, to fly. But... Um, and then the last one I want to discuss here was penicillin. So 1928, penicillin was uh, invented or dis discovered, I guess, not really invented. Um, and that was uh, obviously incredibly important. It was the first um, discovery of an antibiotic, and it was done by Alexander Fleming. Um, and interestingly, Alexander Fleming, like I said, discovered it in 1928, um, saw that, the, that he was been working with mold and, and um, found that the mold that he had been culturing was uh, killing um, uh, some uh, bacteria that he also had been uh, in a culture. So um, he found out the part of the, of the mold that was uh, having this effect on the, on the bacteria. Uh, he did, you know, published it and, and uh, isolated the, the 
the mold component that was necessary to kill the bacteria, which all very important work. He did not, however, have any success really convincing anyone, convincing anyone at the time that it was important. Um, and so while he made the incredibly important discovery uh, and did all the scientific work to, to uh, move it along, uh, he had a very difficult time convincing people that, uh, that there was usefulness in it. At, um, at least not for you know five ten years, and so um, he he actually eventually abandoned his penicillin work to do other things, uh, and it was picked up by other scientists and moved towards um, you know using uh, using it in uh, in actual medical fields. So um, Alexander Fleming, important name, obviously incredibly important uh, contribution to medical science. All right, uh, that's obviously just a, a quick look at the a few highlights of the science and technology uh, steps forward in the 1920s. A lot of other things happened in 1920s. Uh, let's move on to Matt. You're going to tell us a little bit about um, the 1920s and uh, war and uh, anything else along those lines. Okay. And again, I'm I'm leaving kind of internal conflicts to Tim as he sure. talks about the political landscape. So. Um, the various civil wars, I'll, I'll let him hit that. Uh, but so in, in the 1920s, you had the entire world coming off of World War One, the Great War, and thinking, wow, we should never do this again. Except they didn't think that. Uh, and they immediately got back into it all over the place. And so you have all these all these conflicts starting up. Um, let's let's talk about the remains of the Ottoman Empire. Following World War One, the victorious allied powers had basically said that we are not going to occupy Turkey, but we are going to put troops there to maintain safety and intervene only if needed. Um, so as part of the not occupying Turkey, uh, Britain and France and Greece all sent troops down to hang out in Ottoman controlled territory. Um, uh, the the Turkish did not like this at all, and so you had the this uh, the Turkish War of Independence kicking off in 1919, just a, less than a year after World War One concluded. Um, again, Britain, France, Greece, and and some other uh, entities on one side against Turkish nationalists on the other, and you had uh, the Turkish royalists on on the side of the the Allies as as they were. You know, that was the government that the allies were now propping up, kind of. Uh, the Turkish nationalists did not like this at all. They wanted to be their own thing and not have, uh, you know, British and French troops not occupying their land, even though they're standing right there. Um, and, and so this war kicked off, lasted for a couple of years and, and resulted in the abandonment of some of the post-World War I treaties and the establishment of new treaties uh, that created the modern nation of Turkey uh, as, a, as a secular nation. The Sultanate was uh, abolished. The Ottoman Empire was totally gone. It was no longer a thing. But you had the nation of Turkey and you had allied withdrawal from many of these disputed territories. And so that was that was kind of a that was a victory for Turkey to become Turkey and to get all of these militaries that were not occupying its land out of its land. Um, so you had that you, 
I've, I've mentioned some of the wars that were going on in Saudi Arabia or what is now Saudi Arabia. This continued through the 1920s, and, and I'll talk about it a little bit more next time. But you had some decisive engagements. Uh, the, the unification of Saudi Arabia formally wrapped up in 1932. So, so I'll hit the next week when we talk about the 1930s. But um, Ibn Saud executed his military campaign uh, throughout the 1910s, the 1920s, and, and so forth. And, and there were a number of decisive engagements where he continued. He, he really got a large bulk of land under his control uh, that would, again, be part of that formation that became modern Saudi Arabia. Also, uh, jumping back up to the, the European realm, um, again, World War One just ended. Everyone is devastated. Nobody wants to fight except the Poles who decide, yeah, we should expand eastward into, into uh, this, this kind of devastated area and expand Polish influence. And so uh, that's what they do. They start charging eastward uh, right up against the, the Bolsheviks and the Soviets, who are in the midst of their own civil war. Um, the Red Army launches a counterattack. The, the slogans that you have uh, going on on both sides are pretty ridiculous. Uh, the Red Army launches a counterattack, smashes the Poles, charges all the way to Warsaw. It looks like Poland is pretty much doomed here. Um, the, uh, there, there's a great headline roughly translated into English from the Soviet newspaper Pravda, uh, says, through the corpse of white Poland lies the way to world inferno. On bayonets, we will carry happiness and peace to working humanity. Oh my. Wow. Yeah. That's so, pleasant. You know, to make a happy red humanity, you have to break a few Polish white. I, I don't know. It's the weirdest thing. I, I can't even. Yeah. Anyway, that's, this is the type of, of nationalism and idealism that we were dealing with there. Uh, so the red the red army does pretty well against the poles after you know the poles charge eastward at the beginning they're doing really well uh, and they just run wild the red army finally gets a counterattack going and they start doing really well and they're now running wild heading west into Poland uh, finally Poland the the Polish forces rally they they score a decisive victory at the Battle of Warsaw. And at this point, the Russians kind of give up and say, all right, let's 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 have a treaty here. And so they do. And Poland gains about 200 kilometers of of, ter of linear territory east of its pre-existing border and really establishes the border for Poland uh, right up until about World War Two. Um, again, you just have countries saying i want to control more stuff and kicking off another war and that takes us back down to north africa as as our regular listeners will remember you have the italian occupation of libya going on where libya had totally legitimately i'm sorry italy had uh formed legitimate legal um rights i guess to occupy Libya, and by legitimate and legal, I mean that they had basically convinced the rest of Europe to let them have Libya. That was the extent of legitimate and legal at the time. Right. So, 
yeah, Italy is down there. Um, they they had their victory over the Ottoman forces that had been up in Libya, but you know you still had actual Libyans down there who who kind of didn't like this, and so they they um, you know started fomenting rebellion and insurgency. Unfortunately, so it, it, Italy paid in blood victory but they did achieve a victory over these libyan insurgents and and they managed to hang on to their influence down there for a while um speaking of former ottoman territories uh you have iraq which is now suddenly under british control uh, the british appointed uh well there are no british appointed rulers there are brits down there running iraq many of the iraqis do not care for this arrangement and so they start up their own rebellion, uh, and you have you, you have an interesting time in Iraqi history where you have all of these different ethnic and, and religious groups in Iraq, Shia, Sunni, and Kurds, all coming together in one form or another and trying to throw off the Brits who are down there controlling things. Uh, unfortunately, this does not go well for for the Iraqis. The British managed to crush this rebellion, but at great cost again to themselves. Um, it, the The cost for the campaign was something like double the amount that they had budgeted to deal with Iraq. And in fact, it was more costly for the British to subdue this Iraqi rebellion than it had been for them to foment all of the rebellions in down in the Arab world against the Ottomans during World War One. Um, so that's I don't I don't know what that is. That's that's a that's a something. Yes. Uh, anyway, following this, the British uh, looked at their Iraqi strategy and said, you know what? Maybe it's not good for us to just be down there as as the the guys administering Iraq. Why don't we install kind of a puppet government that'll be friendly to us instead made of iraqis and so they did that and that that was they moved forward that way um so again you have influence and 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 power and empire um and and this continued you had the rift war in north africa where uh the the rift peoples or, or tribes um or, or rather the people in that region rift doesn't exist anymore um, rebelling against the Spanish colonialists and, and with the aid of the French getting crushed. Uh, I'm sorry, the the French came to the aid of the Spanish. Um, you, you have a number of other things. I'll talk about this one more next time because a lot of these campaigns conclude in the 30s, but you had the United States running around with various campaigns down in South America and in Nicaragua, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and so forth. And I'll talk more about those a little bit next time. Uh, but if the World War One taught us anything as a species, I don't actually know what it was because you have all of these powers immediately mixing it up again uh, for the sake of influence and power and reach and empire. And I mentioned last time, the first one kicked off less than a month after the Treaty of Versailles was signed with the Germans uh, being involved. Um, so th- th- this was the 1920s were not a time of, of peace and parties for much of the world. Uh, while the United States was, was doing whatever they were doing and, and 
avoiding prohibition and doing flapper dances, uh, much of the rest of the world was either defending or attempting to throw off uh, colonialist agendas. And anyone in the U.S. military had a significant chance of being part of that kind of not exactly colonialist, but definitely influence-based uh, agenda running around down in South America at the time. Uh, so mm. that's that's kind of wars in the 1920s in a nutshell. Um, and then each okay. one of these could t- take up its own series of, of lectures and discussions, but, but that's kind of what you have. Uh, really quick, I'll jump over and do disasters if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the 1920s were, were not great for disasters. Uh, turns out that no decade is great when you look at all <laughs> the disasters. Um, <laughs> but there was a particularly bad uh, couple of events um, it was starting right off in 1920. At the end of the year in December, you have uh, an earthquake. I'm going to get these pronunciations wrong. I'm sorry. Um, in the provinces of Gangsu and Shanxi. Shanxi? Okay, I, I do not. Yeah, that. Uh, I apologize. I do not know Chinese pronunciation at all. Um, <laughs> but anyway, you, you have this earthquake. This is an 8.6 magnitude earthquake. Um, between the earthquake and the landslides that follow it, you lose between one and 200,000 people in, in wow. fatalities, not displacements, which is ridiculous. It's just off the charts how many people were affected by this. But that's deaths. One to two hundred thousand. Yeah. Um, a couple other events, just going forward chronologically, uh, some of these more or less significant. Um, you have a U.S. Navy ship, the Conestoga, which takes off from California uh, with fifty-six people aboard and is never heard from again. Um, in two thousand nine, there uh, some some that, that was lost in the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, no, it was um, headed from California to Hawaii. Oh. Uh, it was it was just lost in the Pacific. But in in 2009, there was some wreckage discovered in the near the Farallon, Farallon, Far- I don't know, some islands. And in 2016, um, the U.S. government was able to confirm that yeah, that wreckage was the Conestoga. Um, 56 people uh, gone on that ship. That's a comparatively small one but just the the vanishing without a trace of that ship again 1921 um 1921 uh, had another major kinetic event in germany um again my pronunciation skills are not the great but the british aniline chemical works uh those went up um nitrate manufacturing plant exploded 561 people killed uh it not only destroyed the plant but a village nearby um 561 people killed and over 1500 wounded and injured as a result of that one um 1922 in february you had the airship rome explode in virginia 34 people killed in that one uh shortly after at the end of the summer china gets hit by a typhoon that takes out 60,000 people. And then finally, in not finally, uh, moving into 1923, you have the great Kanto earthquake in Japan. Uh, Japan is no stranger to earthquakes, but this one is pretty bad. Um, 
there are between one and two hundred thousand people killed uh, in this one. And again, these are fatalities, not the number of people displaced, made homeless, uh, not the, the structures ruined and, and the lives devastated. These are just the fatalities, hundreds of thousands uh, killed in these earthquakes. Uh, going back to the United States, in 1925, you have the Great Tri-State Tornado, which is one of the most devastating um, weather events in the United States. Uh, Tri-states, meaning Illinois, Indiana, and Missouri, they're nice and flat. Lots of uh, tornado-friendly country there. 695 people killed in that one. And then to continue with the United States um, weather woes, uh, a year and a half later, in September of 26, you have the Great Miami Hurricane which kills 400 people, devastates Miami, and leaves 50,000 people homeless. This is a Cat 4 hurricane. Um, and then you start getting into floods. And, and you just, for some reason, the second half of the 1920s is all about floods. You have floods in uh, 27 down in Louisiana as a number of levees fail. Uh, and, and you just have, well... The Mississippi going all over the place, 27,000 square miles flooded throughout Arkansas, Illinois, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Tennessee. Um, many thousands displaced, 500 people killed. Uh, Vermont, later that year, uh, three days of severe flooding that takes out over 1,200 bridges and kills 84 people. Um, more flooding uh, as, as a result of the Mississippi River flooding, Congress basically said, uh, we're not going to do this anymore. We are going to tame the Mississippi River. And they installed 1,500 miles of, of levees uh, just across the river or, or throughout the length of the river and, and little reaches, branches and everything else. Uh, 1928, the St. Francis, the Francis Dam in uh, California collapses, three-year-old uh, three dam collapses, 450 people killed in, in the floods. And then finally in 1928, you have Florida getting hit by another hurricane where 6,000 people are lost. So in terms of natural disasters, this isn't perhaps as bad a decade as, as we saw in the 1900s and the 1910s. You don't have the multi-million person losses that you had with uh, the flu outbreak or, or the famines in China. But you do have some major significant events, uh, particularly earthquake-related uh, and flood-related. Uh, the earthquakes in particular with uh, casualty counts up in the hundreds of thousands. So that that's pretty much it for natural disasters for the 1920s. I'd imagine that as we go decade to decade here and move forward into, into more towards modern times, we're going to see the death counts for natural disasters generally decline over time, though there obviously are outliers. Yeah, um, you have but, the um, Indonesian tsunami uh, back in, what was it, 2004, um, where I, I, that was absolutely devastating. Uh, something like a quarter of a million people were killed. Right. But in general... You do see, um, you, you will see reduced fatalities, 
partially because, as we mentioned before, we as as a public have figured out that, hey, maybe we should have safety codes for some of this stuff. Uh, you know, the airship Rome, when it went up, um, and, and we'll talk about the Hindenburg later, spoilers, uh, maybe we shouldn't make our transportation systems out of highly flammable, explosive, <laughs> um, you know, hydrogen gases. Uh, buildings, we should have such things as emergency exits and automatic sprinklers. Uh, we'll talk about that one when we talk about the, the prison fire in the 1930s. Um, but yeah, we, we have made a, a large amount of progress, but we do still live on a planet that is, quite frankly, far more powerful than we as humans are. And yep. when when nature strikes, there's sometimes very little we can do about it. All right. Thanks, Matt. We'll uh, we'll move now to um, well. Generally, I'd go to Tim next, but I like making Tim wait. So what? <laughs> should I go? I'm going to punt it over to Cameron next. Cameron, you're going to take us a little bit through the culture and art of the 1920s. Um, lots of interesting things going on in the United States. I'm sure. Uh, I don't know if you've got other world facts, but can you give us a little bit of, of uh, a little bit of information about the 1920s and 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 yeah, um, I I definitely have some world facts and um, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the U.S. as Matt kind of touched on. Um, uh, the Roaring Twenties was more for the U.S. Um, and the flappers and all that. Um, it's because we had a lot of money um, after winning, helping win World War One. So. Um, we started to do more things. So it definitely led to more culture and happenings here in the U.S., but other things happened as well. Uh, we'll start off with the Summer Olympics that took place in Belgium um, after World War One, in 1920. It's interesting. I'm surprised that it's – I didn't know it was in Europe after right after World War One ended we're having a world uh, summer Olympics I'm guessing summer Olympics back then were not the huge mega you know hundreds of millions yeah. by a country in order to host them <laughs> back then uh, I mean well summer Olympics have always been kind of the more main Olympics right. uh, winter was kind of the more stepchild that still somewhat is um, but yeah no it was in Antwerp Belgium interesting Things that happened that we should probably talk about that might steal a little bit of thunder from Tim. Um, it's more that I'm saying this because it leads to a lot of the culture things. Um, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, they give the women right to vote. Oh, uh, I'm my stuff. I know. I'm sorry. I'm just saying <laughs> because right, of this, it, um, I'm not going to go into depth to it, but I'm just saying that it led to a lot of the cultural revolution for the women that you see happening in the 1920s. So that kind of kicked off a lot of that. That's all I'm going to say about it, if that's okay with you, Tim. That's good. <laughs> so because of that happened, um, it led to shortening of dresses and stuff like that interesting enough in 1920 the first little black dress came out and has stayed an iconic piece of history to today mm. i know that song yes um sarah Borellis, little black dress anyway 
I think that is that is right. Sing um, it for us. <laughs> I, I will not. Yeah. <laughs> um, the iconic Chanel, or as I like to pronounce it, Channel Number Five perfume was created by Coco Chanel. Um, still an iconic perfume that a lot of people wear today, although I have never actually liked the scent of it. That's just a little tidbit about me. <laughs> that happened in 1921. Now I've got to stop- return your Christmas present. <laughs> Tim, are you talk- going to talk about King Tut? Uh, you can take it. I was just wondering... I, I, Howard Carter, I'm just going to give a teaser, does something crazy with King Tut's tomb. Um, let's see. The first home game is played at the original Yankee Stadium between the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, I don't know how much you're going to talk about it, but my understanding, Cameron, is that the 19... Well, my understanding. I'm a, I am a generally a baseball fan. The 1920s was a very golden oh, era as far as baseball. baseball yeah, baseball yeah. became beautiful, like a huge, because um, you have Babe Ruth and all those. Baseball was huge in the, the, the 20s. I'm not. Yep. I'm just going to try to hit the highlights because there's so much. Well, as happens. long as we get Babe's Ruth, Babe Ruth's name in there, I think we're we're, uh, we're good. Okay. And other people that if I exactly. actually followed baseball, that I could actually say. Um, well, other people's good enough. Babe Ruth and other people. Yeah. And other people. Um, let's see what's here. Uh, Hitler failed in an attempted coup in Germany in 1923. More, more on that to come. You'll find out what happened when he went to jail. Um, 1924, the first Winter Olympics are held in Chamonix, France. I think it's Chamonix. It's C H A M O N I X or Chamonix. Uh, we'll ask Tim. It's no. pronounced Chamonix. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> France. <laughs> sorry Tim to our French listeners. Yes, uh, Tim. Not sorry soon. to not sorry to our Quebecois listeners because I did use the Quebecois accent. Okay, now sorry to all our Quebecois listeners. (laughs) Please don't hate us, Canada. Um, First Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is held in 1924. Um, One of the building um, things that we talked about previously, uh, still in the 1920s to 1930s, is Art Deco, Cubism, and Surrealism. Um, Art Deco... Um, has been really popular um, during that time, and many of the murals that were created are still um, ha- held in high revere. Um, I want to go into them, but some of the ones that I want, they kind of bounce into the 30s, so we'll hold off on those. But those, the movements we're gaining from those, and some of the more famous um, painters that we'll talk about are Salvador Dali, Edward Hopper, uh, Diego Riviera. Um, we'll talk about those. Those guys really did some amazing stuff. Um, if you haven't had a chance to look at Diego Riviera's 
uh, murals. I think he has some of the most amazing murals, um, Spanish history that you'll you'll see. They're beautiful stuff. Here, here. Um, I guess we'll pop over to um, a little bit more jazz stuff. Um, also, because of something that Tim will hit, um, talking about his thing of the uh, prohibition. Um, here, here. Bath, bathtub gin was a popular thing that people made. So people would start distilling the, their own liquor and make their own stuff to drink in speakeasies and dance the jazz music that was super popular during the 1920s. And as Carl mentioned, the talkie films that started, if you want a good movie that kind of explains that, I would suggest watching the... Oh, why can I not think... Dancing in the Rain. Is that the name of the movie? Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. Not dancing. Singing in the Rain. Oh, my gosh. I well, there's some dancing sh- there, too. So They dance and sing in the rain. They could have named it Dancing in the Rain just as well. Though they, I guess, yeah. Anyways. That would have been from a few years before they had the talkies. That would have just been Dancing in the Rain. But, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, one of the first talkies, as we all know, or the first talkie, was the jazz singer. Um, just, you know, shows the influence, you know, that jazz music was taking over, how amazing it was. Um, I'm a huge fan of jazz and swing. Um, Spoilers, the jazz singer would not fly in in today's uh, culture. Are we saying we're not allowed to do blackface anymore? (laughs) You you make a blackface movie and uh, produce it and see what happens. You don't think you that know, would go well? I don't think it would go over well either. Um, no, it wouldn't. So maybe movies for our listeners to not to avoid watching so they don't offend anyone would be also The Holiday. Not The Holiday. Uh, it's Holiday something. Well, and and on a serious note about that, it, it's probably good to note that when when we go back in time and look at these things, we see a, a movie like The Jazz Singer that's you know uh very insensitive to things like race or whatnot we you know we have to know what we're going into um sometimes it can be a little bit jarring to experience that kind of stuff when you when you go back in history yeah um so i mean obviously we should have had a black person as a star in that movie but we we didn't um let's see a thick black eyeliner became more popular Uh, can we we hit on the flapper dance because the flapper dance if we the charleston you you want the charleston okay well not the flapper dance it's called the charleston (laughs) and it Uh, it was the most popular um and i you know i i cannot do it well but it looks like a whole lot of fun I yeah, Tim, like Tim, if if we were a YouTube channel, which we're not really, though we technically are podcast, you go to YouTube, but it's just with an image instead of someday when we are rich and famous, uh, Tim will, will demonstrate a flapper dance for the audience. So. As long as you sing the song for me. <laughs> Interesting enough, um, swimsuits and lingerie became extremely popular in the 1920s. Mm. Mm. So, uh, thank you, 1920s, for Swimsuits <laughs> and Lingerie. Nice. 
Uh, let's see. Um, oh, here's an interesting thing uh, for men's fashion, because well, I'm just going to try to touch on this. Um, Edward, Prince of Wales, made a tour of the United States in the autumn of 1924, uh, which changed everything. But anyway, in his public appearances, he had 1,819 different uniforms and suits and 3,601 different hats. The modern day, or the, well, the modern day version of him would, I believe, be, if you're a ba- basketball fan, Russell Westbrook, who, from what I've heard, only wears a pair of clothes once and never again. Wow. Yeah. Um, anyway, but he changed the way uh, suits were made and stuff like that for the next uh, s- couple decades. Um he instituted um, the way trousers are now pressed. Um, instead of uh, pressed to the side, he pressed front to back, things like that. Um, I don't know if that's actually interesting to anyone, but I like that it. That is interesting. Little things that you don't think about. You're like, yeah, why well, do we it's the little things. The um, yeah. Also, pleats became uh, pleats became really big in the 20s. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to be, you know, all inclusive in my my cultural things there. So, you know, we're not we're not just going to take just random. You know, we'll we'll try to do all types of culture, um, like Mount Rushmore began in the 1920s, and it won't oh, be completed nice. until two podcasts from now. <laughs> That's how they measured time back then, too. <laughs> It took 15 years to complete, so we right. will, in the, uh, what is that, 35? We'll talk about that and say Mount Rushmore was completed. But we'll let's have some fun stuff. Mickey Mouse appeared in Steamboat Willie for the first time in the 1920s. Um, let's see. Amelia Earhart flies across the Atlantic Ocean, being the first woman to do that. Uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Um, oh, here's a fun thing. First SAT in college admissions was given to high school students in 1926. It was a dark day in history. It was a dark day. Also in 1926, Ford Motor Company announces the creation of the 40-hour work week for factory workers, which, as we know from previous podcasts, so we know that oftentimes the, the people's work weeks were like 60 to 70 hours so it's you know we started to do things like that uh route 66 coast to coast or almost coast to coast chicago to la uh opened and houdini dies at 52 Uh, it says from a burst appendix but i think we should also talk about how the appendix burst um one of Houdini's things that he would do is he boasted that he could take a hit from any man. And if you tighten your stomach just right, you can take a hit really well from being punched. And um, it became one of his kind of his acts that he did. And what happened is some young man, um, large young man, uh, rang his doorbell and he opened the door and then he just got punched in the gut, not being able to prepare for, you know, to be able to take the hit, which actually ruptured the appendix in a couple days. It took a couple days. He just wasn't feeling good. And that is what he actually came from. Uh. 
So a little history on that. Toys. Bird whistles came out in the 20s. Yeah, gyroscopes became really popular in the 20s. Gyroscopes. I remember gyroscopes. Those are cool. And you could buy a Regal Studebaker for just under $2,000. But you could get a Chevy car for $525 and a Chevy truck for, it looks like, about $600 for the luxury edition. Nice. Well, and that was a workhorse truck that they used in in the war that would not die. Great. Well, thanks, Cameron. Um, all right, I'm gonna let Tim take us home here. Uh, Tim, you've got uh, 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. So, boy, 1920s. How about the 1920s? Dang. All right, I'm done. That's okay. That's kind of condensed. Yeah, that's <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Yeah. If you could take us through politics, economics, uh, tell us a little bit about what happened. Okay. So, 1920s. Again, a lot happening and and continuing our our theme of with the passage of time, things modernize. You know, which is strangely happens with every passing year and decade. We get closer and closer to modern times. It's, okay, Tim. Thank you. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. So just for that. Uh, Gershwin was very popular in the 20s. <laughs> Gershwin, there we go. <clears throat> okay, so um, Cameron already touched on women's suffrage. Um, in, in the United States, uh, 1920 was the big year, the passage of the 19th Amendment, um, which officially made it you know, illegal to um, discriminate based on, on sex and so forth. Um, keeping in mind that the uh, application of that uh, was not always even handed and across the board. Um, it, for example, if you were an African-American woman, you know, you probably wouldn't have been easily able to vote anytime soon for still a number of decades. Uh, we should also keep in mind that our United States centric um, perspective, we shouldn't forget that other nations were even further ahead of the game on that. For example, Uruguay in 1917 was the first American nation to um, give women the franchise. Um, Norway, of course, even earlier than that in 1913. Um, yeah, I think we brought that up in a previous podcast, oh, right? That right was, yeah. yeah. No, so, so, anyways, um, but by, by 1920, things were really rolling and it was starting to become much more, um, much more fair and equitable. Um, uh, prohibition technically started in 1919 with the passage of, I think, the 18th Amendment, if I'm remembering right. Um, but with, it's uh, notable as a 1920s phenomenon because it covered that entire decade and was um, was uh, repealed very narrowly, actually, in 1933. So most of the most of if you anything you think about having to do with prohibition, you are probably thinking of the 1920s. For example, as Cameron mentioned, the Valentine's Day massacre happened in 1929 in Chicago. Uh, seven gangsters were basically lined up against a wall by people dressed up as police officers and killed. Um, there's still uncertainty about who did it, possibly a, um, a, uh, another gang, um, or possibly the, there's even a, um, a theory that it was members of the Chicago Police Department uh, seeking revenge for the killing of a police officer's son. So 
but it uh, it's notable, you know, seven people being murdered in Chicago is hardly, you know, Chicago has many murders every year. Um, but, and sorry, Chicago, I know other cities do too, but, uh, but <laughs> this, um, this kind of, uh, typified and, um, helped to, I believe, um, politicize the, um, this kind of under, underworld of gang violence that had become, uh, so prevalent with the, with the illegalization of alcohol. And you, you had kind of uh, two factors: one, the the law making alcohol illegal, and two, the strong cultural norms of still wanting to consume alcohol and alcohol still being in high demand, um, making this kind of illegal um, underworld really fueling it uh, was, during that era. Was this now? You know, I said this were U.S. centric because we're all American, but uh, I've never looked it up, and maybe you know. Um, prohibition in the 1920s in the United States, was that um, also being tried in any other countries? Was this a worldwide thing? Was this just an an American um, experiment? Let's see. Um, You know, uh, I'm going to stop for a second while I type into Google (laughs) and look at a list of countries with alcohol prohibition on Wikipedia. Hmm. (laughs) Um, that's why that's why I donate to Wikipedia. While it, Tim yeah. is doing that, I will also like to mention that um, in many of the movies and things that were being played in the 20s, um, the gangster lifestyle, uh, especially carried on through today, was very much romanticized in in things you know that they were they were there for the people to you know so they could break free of the social you know anarchy of everything. Because people needed their alcohol. Mm. Although I do believe during Prohibition, um, violent crimes within the home did go down. So, really? Yes. They just turned to drink instead, huh? <laughs> um, no, no. Be because people weren't coming home drink, drunk and drinking violent oh, crimes really? in the home. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Okay. I think that does oh. highlight the uh, sorry really the the uh, prohibition. I I'm, was clearly I mean there's a reason why we we gave up on it, but uh, there you know there it is a trade off. There were some upsides. There were a lot of downsides. So anyway, you know, the uh, same conversation is going on right now with uh, marijuana and, uh, right. and di- as different states discuss whether to legalize you know medicinal or recreational and so forth. It's it's a very interesting conversation. Uh, uh, yeah, Arizona. Actually, we have something on the ballot for that this upcoming election. Uh, as a school teacher, I do uh, become concerned anytime we begin to normalize an addictive substance. So that's. But anyways, um, Carl, looking at a list here, I do see a number of countries did experiment with prohibition. Most of them in the early 1900s: Iceland, um, Russia, Canada for a couple Canada. of years. Canada, shout out. Canadian. <laughs> that's right. Finland, um, uh, Panama, um, March 25th to May 8th of 2020. Oh, it was pro- prohibited really? as part of the COVID-19 social distancing. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, the uh, Ottoman Empire was way, way ahead of the curve on this, 1612 to 1640. Um, 
But anyways, then so so yeah, prohibition. Anyways, there you have it. Um, Ooh, okay, go sorry, ahead. really quick. Also, uh, currently alcohol. I'm also using Wikipedia. It turns out more than one can use it at the same time. What? Uh, Back up my site. <laughs> it says currently what? alcohol prohibition. More than is one in, person. Yeah, turns out currently alcohol prohibition is enforced in many Muslim major countries and some regions of India. So it turns out uh, Afghanistan, and we actually have quite a, bit, a number of listeners in, in India, so I'd be interested to find out if, if you are, any of our Indian listeners want to let us know if that's enforced, how that's enforced, what, what parts of India that is enforced in. Uh, but yeah, it turns out a lot of, uh, a lot of Muslim countries have uh, current alcohol prohibition um, That's because technically drinking is against uh, the Muslim religion. Right. Um, now, just just so that you are aware, um, while alcohol is no longer prohibited in the United States, there are dry counties um, where the sale of alcohol is prohibited. Uh, counties and cities. Uh, I'll give you one example. In Tennessee, um, you can go and tour the Jack Daniels distillery and give you a, a tour of their whole facility. And then they will bring out a and serve you a tray full of shop glasses with lemonade and then give you very good directions to their store just on the other side of the county border because uh, Jack Daniels whiskey is produced in a dry county. Interesting. Uh, so so they can make it there. They just can't sell it there. <laughs> so anyways, yeah. All right. Good. Okay, nice moving on. 1920s. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the beginning of the decade. Um, in 1920, the Negro National League was formed. Uh, we know that uh, um, African Americans were not allowed to play in the major leagues. Um, and so in the 1920s, uh, the Negro National League was formed and operated kind of alongside um, uh, of course, you know, for, for decades, and I'm sure later on in future decades, we'll talk about Jackie Robinson. Um, but so the, the Negro Leagues, as it was called, um, you had a number of excellent players, and there's a lot of speculation about um, who, who, is, who are the greatest in history. And uh, tragically, because of, you know, the rampant racism and uh, small-mindedness of the, you know, at, at the time, we we never got to see, for example, um, some of the greatest African-American players like Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, and Oscar Charleston, and so forth, playing against, you know, people like Babe Ruth. So it's anyone's guess, though. Here's a, a fun little fact for you. Satchel Paige uh, had incredible longevity, Um he played for 20 years, which especially for a pitcher is spectacular. And um, so in 1948, he um, he uh, after after the major league was open to African-Americans, he played for the Indians as a pitcher and he pitched mostly relief. He was 42 years old at the time, which is ancient for a pitcher Um and among Major League, here's a quote from an ESPN article, among Major League pitchers with at least 150 innings, he ranked fourth in ERA um, for, for two years and fifth in strikeouts per inning. Um, and keep in mind, this is, he's 42 years old. He's ancient. Uh, imagine what he could have, would have done in the Major Leagues in his prime. 
Um, you, you have other players. Um, here's a fun quote about Josh Gibson. Hall of Famer Monty Irvin says, I played with Willie Mays and against Hank Aaron. They were tremendous players, but they were no Josh Gibson. Um, and so, anyways, I, I think it, it's worth noting that, uh, again, we, we talk about Babe Ruth in the major leagues because that's where the attention was at the time. But, um, you know, remembering that... Um, even though society was far from equal and far from just, um, their people were were still doing spectacular things, even with the the limitations or the obscurity imposed upon them. I should say relative obscurity imposed upon them by our historical lens and by the the lens of the media at the time. So, anyways, um, kind of fun facts for you. The uh, just a few more things with uh, going to a different uh, realm. Immig- the Immigration Act of 1924 put a lot of limits on um, immigration, especially from like Eastern and Southern Europe, because that's where people were worried, oh, too many immigrants coming in. Um, it, it's funny how you see in history, uh, immigration uh repeatedly comes up in the national conversation with different fears being based on wherever most immigrants are coming from at that time. Um, I think people lose, uh, uh, people back then didn't recognize the ability of the United States to, um, to create a, a unified nation out of many parts. And I think sometimes people nowadays forget that too, that we're still able to, incorporate and unify. Anyways, enough on that. Um, Warren Harding's campaign slogan for the 1920 um, uh, presidential election was return to normalcy. And that was what everyone was hoping. We'd just gone through the Great War, you know, World War One, and the uh, the Great Influenza the um, of 1918 and 1919. Uh, fun fact for you, uh, when Woodrow Wilson was in Europe negotiating with for the Treaty of Versailles to end World War One. Uh, he was actually struck with the the uh, 1918 influenza, and it was bedridden for a long time. And uh, some people, I I just finished reading a book by John Barry called The Great Influenza, and he actually speculates that Wil- Wilson was actually um, pushing real hard against uh, the French, for example, who wanted to really stick it to Germany. Um, and uh, Wilson wanted to, you know, uh, peace without victory, as he called it. Um, he was bedridden, and uh, Barry suggests that Wilson's uh, in- bout of influenza, which of course was quite serious, may have affected his um, negotiations, which eventually um, he he conceded quite a bit, apparently, to to the um, the more hardcore. And uh, as we know from history, Germany ended up really getting hosed in that treaty. Um, and while there's dispute about the degree to which the Treaty of Versailles contributed to the eventual, um, you know, the the world World War Two, uh, there is no question that part of Hitler's rise to power. Um, was, um, you know, playing on and the resentment, that widespread uh, German resentment to that treaty and to those who had signed it. Um, so it, it was certainly a factor. And in fact, the, um, the 
very heavy-handed reparations that uh, were required of Germany. They, they weren't able to handle them. Um, and so the United States had to come in with this uh, thing called the Dawes Plan, which I, I honestly haven't read enough about it to understand it. But basically, the United States kind of served an intermediary role to help Germany kind of manage things and to get investment to help Germany kind of get back on its uh, on its feet, um, which seems to have been successful because in the later 1920s, um, it, Germany in the early 1920s was just totally hosed after the Great War. They had hyperinflation and, and all this stuff. But in the second half of the 1920s, Germany um, did kind of come into the the booming economy that was being seen in other parts of the world as well. OK, um, sorry. Cameron mentioned Howard Carter opening the crypt of King Tut, Tut and Common. Um, who apparently, Cameron, I don't know if you know more about this than I do. Did he have some kind of like defect or something? They, they yeah. analyzed. What do you guys know about that? Cause I don't know. So much. I went, uh, was, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, you go. No, 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 it's all right. You go. So I went to, they had, uh, some of the artifacts from, uh, King Tut's tomb on display in Los Angeles here mm, two years ago. And I went up with my family and we got to see a bunch of the, uh, a bunch of those things and yeah i believe that there was some type of uh the way that he died was related to some type of uh someone to say an infection in the leg but yeah like there there were there were physical abnormalities that they were able to figure out um from the skeleton okay interesting so um but anyways uh, it, it was a curse it was yeah that's a, right. Oh, right it was right. i'm sorry yes that's correct and it, well, and, and this is a little known fact, but um, Howard Carter was discovered a year later um, and his, he had been uh, totally consumed by these little scarab beetles. Um, and they actually made a documentary about it called The Mummy, um, starring uh, Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. That's a documentary? Excellent movie, yes. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a documentary. It's uh, okay. it's done kind of in a you know Hollywood style, but it's all completely accurate. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. By the way, uh, I did confirm. I did confirm uh, what I remember. My memory did not fail me. The infection. So he had an infection. Died at the age of nineteen. Um, infection was very likely a result of a broken leg. Oh wow. Okay. Huh. And so and we're going to put this challenge out there. Anyone who can manage to get a crypt as ornate and elaborate as King Tut's um, by the age of 19, uh, send us a, a memo and we will recognize you on the podcast. Will we? And how would they send that if they were dead? Oh, that, that is tricky. Hmm. OK, scratch that. I, I will spring for them to have solar panels installed by Gary. Ooh, ooh, there we go. <laughs> so solar panels on your crypt. That would be uh, I guess you could keep things kind of like lights going or a little digital yeah. display. That'd be cool. <laughs> OK, Cameron also mentioned Hitler's attempted uprising um, got him thrown into jail where in 1923 he wrote and published Mein Kampf, a kind of manifesto of sorts. Haven't read it, don't plan on reading it, um, but it did, uh, it was part of his rise to power. 
1923, also Pancho Villa was assassinated. And um, anyway, so those of us who live in the American Southwest, um, he, he was a Mexican um, revolutionary kind Kind of not not exactly a warlord per se, but he he operated outside of the established law, and um, anyways, very colorful character. Um, sorry, I got to go back in time. In 1922, the English, the British Empire, excuse me, British Empire starts to see more cracks in the veneer. Um, Ireland and Egypt both uh, gaining independence from England. Uh, Ireland's independence was followed by a civil war as it, um, you know, convulsed internally by, you know, attempted to establish a stable government. Um, USSR was also formed in 1922, the, uh, the Soviet Union. Um, the Soviet civil war began in the, uh, what was it, 1917, right? But anyways, the, it, that conflict dragged on for some time. But it, by 1922, the, the uh, Soviets had established, had established power. Um, speaking of communists, in 1927, the Chinese Civil War begins. It drags on for a very long time. It, in fact, the historians divide it into phases. You have the 1927 to 36, and this was the Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist Chinese group government who originally um, governed China versus the communists. Uh, by the way, the Communist Party was in China was founded in 1921. Um, the that civil war kind of paused from 1937 to 45, and then in 1945, uh, Mao Zedong uh, rose to power in the Communist Party, and uh, after World War II. Uh, sorry, more on this in decades to come, but uh, spoilers, the communists won um, and the Chinese nationalists had to take refuge on the island of Formosa, if I'm not mistaken, which we now know as Taiwan. And they're still there. <clears throat> Is right. it Formosa? It right? might be. I don't remember. OK. Formosa, Portuguese for beautiful, incidentally. Um, are, you are you taking us across the, uh, the content for the next podcast, Tim? Because it's stop. so hard. Everything bleeds together. We want to yes. just make these arbitrary decade divisions. <laughs> and, we will. and we will. That's <laughs> right. Take Taiwan that history. It was also occupied not only by the Portuguese, but also the Japanese. Really? Interesting. Um, that island has another interesting fact in that it's been determined that it is the homeland of the Polynesian diaspora uh, or diaspora. How do you say that? Whatever. Anyways, people from as far as um, Easter Island, Hawaii, um, uh, Madagascar, Indonesia and uh, the Philippines. They all apparently um, originated from a group in on that island long, long, long ago. Uh, they've done linguistic studies and, and found that they're all connected and related. And anyways, so fun fact for you. Okay, yeah, um, back to back to the 1920s. So 1925, we have the Scopes trial, uh, commonly known as the Scopes monkey trial. Um, this was actually a um, 
a planned conflict. The uh, I can't remember which group it was, but it, it was uh, basically people who who were frustrated with how science was being taught uh, wanted to recognize evolution in schools. Basically said, hey, we need someone to be a, a test case so we can get this um, get this into a court and and make it happen. And so it was a big uh, a big public to do. Um, and uh, you, you had Mr. Scopes or whoever who taught some evolution in school and then got charged and got taken to trial and so forth. Um, and that kind of um, it's interesting that that well, anyways, to put it short, that put uh, was a big uh, watershed moment for the teaching of science in schools. Uh, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, sorry, Cameron, I'm going to steal a little bit uh, from culture, but I just I love A.A. A. Milne. Winnie the Pooh was published in 1926. Um, in 1928, Steamboat Willie um, was. Uh, came out the that's the first um mickey mouse cartoon with sound and it was the it's the cartoon that really put animation animated movie you know with sound on on the map and i you know disney kind of went from there and became huge and now disney owns your soul but anyways um it's a humble humble beginnings Right. Um, All right. Tim, let's wrap it up. Okay, fine. One last thing. Black Tuesday, 1929. This was a fun time to be invested in the stock market. Uh, in October, you had two days where the stock market fell 23% in two days. Um, so basically, you would have lost one quarter of your value, 12% percent um, in one day and 11% in another. Um, the stock market continued to, to tumble over the course of the next uh, couple of years and in less than three years lost 89% of its value from its peak. Um, so a pretty spectacular loss. Of course, we've seen some fireworks recently in the stock market, including some more than 10% in one day uh, losses. But um, Nothing quite to that degree. Uh, of course, the jury's still out. We'll see how things play out. Who knows if uh, we'll have another kind of crashing set of months or years. Um, but anyways, um, Black Tuesday, uh, an iconic moment in the stock market. There you go. Now you know everything there is to know about the 1920s. Anything we didn't talk about didn't happen. <laughs> Yes, history or per. Just didn't talk about it to condense time. <laughs> Some would argue this being our longest podcast, I think ever. We didn't condense a lot of time. Um, <laughs> Though to be fair, a decade is ten years, and we squished it into what less than two hours. Well, as you already said, though, we talked about everything that happened in the decade. So That's right. Um, they spent a lot of time just sitting around and staring. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that'll take us to the end of the podcast here. Quite, uh, quite a um, cornucopia of uh, information here. Quite a, uh, yeah, a smorgasbord of things to choose from. So, uh, you say cornucopia and smorgasbord in two sentences. I can, and, and I did. And I will. a hodgepodge or a potable. Oh, 
Guys, this is getting too heavy for me. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you uh, to our listeners uh, from all over the world. Uh, and we will be back again soon. I know a lot of you come for um, hard sciences and most of our, our biggest podcasts are the uh, the hard sciences. We're going to finish this history uh, series uh, and then we'll be back on uh, on things that Tim is an expert in, such as calculus and uh, quantum mechanics. That's right. Hey, hey, just to prove it, quick hard science snippet. Um, big news. Did you guys hear about? Um, superconductor at room temperature. Ooh, that is a good one. I did hear that. Yes, except that, uh, Tim, not to burst your bubble or your superconductor, it's at uh, about 2.3 million atmosphere pre- atmospheric pressure units. So um, maybe if I put it in like a little, you know, container and pump it full of air to the pressure. No. Oh. Yeah, it yeah. might be hard to. <laughs> that's so, more yeah. psi than i put in my bike tire <laughs> a little bit just a tiny bit um so yes uh, very it was exciting but you read the articles and it turns out that yes as of yet we still don't have a usable uh superconductor that uh, um at least i mean now have one room temperature but turns out most people can't create two point what 2.3 million atmospheric pressure units or whatever so um uh, not yet my instant pot can <laughs> that's right <laughs> all right well um uh, that's the end here thanks and we will be back again next week adios